right. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Gaucho Amigos. I'm Alex. If you're new to the podcast, uh, thanks for checking it out. I appreciate it. Uh, feel free to uh, dig into the archives and listen to the three other episodes that I've already posted. And uh, if you enjoy what you hear today, you know, I encourage you to tell the other Steely Dan fans in your life about the podcast or uh, at least like, subscribe or uh, write a review. It uh, helps get the word out. So thanks in advance if you do uh, decide to do that. Today, my guest is Stephen Hyden. He's a music critic, uh, kind of focuses on rock music. He wrote Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. Uh, which I had actually read uh, even before I was doing any kind of uh, Steely Dan account and I uh, had enjoyed that a lot. Uh, and then once the account started, you know, Stephen uh, took notice of it and was following and uh, he'll occasionally do uh, Steely Dan bits on his own account. Um, when there was that whole uh, brouhaha a couple months ago with uh, Steve Albini, he wrote a very humorous uh, retort that went viral. So um I think it was actually right after that that I uh, popped into uh, his DMs and asked him if he uh, wanted to do one of these uh, Steely Dan chats. And yeah, he agreed. And uh, we had a, a really fun talk. Uh, before I share our conversation, I should just mention that Stephen is also an avid podcaster. He does a podcast called IndieCast, which is about indie music and another one called Never Ending Stories, which he co-hosts with the Boys of Jokerman uh, podcast, uh, which focuses on Bob Dylan bootlegs, although they recently also did a Steely Dan bootleg. So there you go. Feel free to check that out. Uh, without further ado, this is my conversation with Stephen Hyden. Enjoy. There's something about Steely Dan in particular where hating them has a greater significance than it does hating some other classic rock band. And I, and I really think, and not to get too highfalutin music critic language <laughs> here, but I, I yep. do think that there's something about Steely Dan that signifies a, a binary at the core of like how we talk about music, which is this idea that not only does music not need to be sophisticated or technically proficient in order to be good? Because that really was, I think, the established way of talking about quality until like maybe like the mid 20th century, like when mm -hmm. rock comes into play and you have blues before that. But not only is, is that not important for music being good, but in a way, if it is technically proficient and it is really sophisticated, that actually makes it bad. You know, that's been something that for as long as I've been reading music writing has been one of the core assumptions that people have. That music should be simple, it should be direct, it should be loud, it should be aggressive, it should be abrasive. Uh, it should be in some sense anti-intellectual. So well, wasn't, you been like, I was just going to say, wasn't, all of that kind of the punk response to a lot of the music that was going on in the seventies. Like right. That, right. Like... Yeah. You want, you watch any music documentary about the history of rock. You never really come to the part where 
you know, some music critic will be like, well, music was getting too pretentious in the 70s. You had Emerson, Lake, and Palmer playing 15-minute keyboard solos. Exactly. And that's why we needed the Sex Pistols to come along yeah. and demolish all that stuff. <laughs> Which, in reality, it's like, well, prog rock still stuck around after punk. You know, it's not like it disappeared. It's not like, you know, like like Pink Floyd put up the wall in the middle of the, of the, of the punk thing. And that's like one of the biggest albums of all time. Um so, but that's just part of the narrative of like how we talk about music. So the reclamation project with them yep. is partly rooted in looking at that more critically, that idea and being like, well, I, cause like, I like punk, punk is great, but it's like, why can't you like this too? You know, mm -hmm. it, it seems weird to pit these things against each other. So, um, you know, but there's always going to be people that like want that binary to remain in place and it's meaningful to them you know because yeah. like because like with something like punk you know that is a big part of its significance you know it it's not just the music it's the sort of confrontational nature of it you know the idea that this music is not only good but it's actually threatening to the status quo you know people still want to say like yeah we're sticking it to the man with this sort of music uh because it's aggressive and it's loud and you know, it's a jab and a finger in your chest. And to say to somebody, well, maybe music can be confrontational, but also have like beautiful saxophone solos. In it. <laughs> you know, that's kind of like a radical idea, I think, still for a lot well, of people to wrap their heads around. Yeah. And, and I feel like part of the reaction, you know, the non-musicality of it is part of what, you know, is embraced because it's saying I'm too cool and detached to learn my instrument or to you know, carry on all these solos and have all these jazz, you know, chords or, or instruments. Um, you're, you're saying, you know, it's rock music is actually more about attitude and and maybe performance and fashion and. Or yeah. the idea that it should upset your yep. parents, which is like <laughs> another old school idea. You see that parroted in like a million rock documentaries like this band came along and parents were ripping their hair out. They couldn't believe this band. And then you have Steely Dan, where if you look at when people dismiss them, it's usually talking about caricatures of the people who listen to Steely Dan. And it's yeah. usually, you know, some variation on like a uncool dad. I was born in the 80s and my childhood was, you know, mostly the 90s. Yeah. And I so what was considered cool was kind of coming out of punk, you know, because it was like alternative rock grunge. Even if you liked Steely Dan, you probably weren't going to share that information with your peers if you wanted to appear cool to them and you wanted to show that you had good taste. Same with um, Fleetwood Mac, which has had a similar reclamation. Like, I remember if you said that you liked Fleetwood Mac in, in like 1997, people would like look at you funny. I mean, maybe that was just my own circle of friends, but like yeah. now they've become like the epitome of like what's considered great about um, american um pop music in a while right know. i mean it has flipped in a fascinating way where i yeah. feel like i hear younger people talking about Fleetwood mac and steely dan more than right. like the ramones and mm. clash you know yeah where that would be sacrilegious to a lot of people like i i, I don't and I love the Ramones and I love the Clash, but I don't yeah. feel like those bands have the same cachet that they did 20 years ago. Like when when I was getting into music as a teenager in the 90s, yeah. that was part of the syllabus. You know, like you had to investigate that music. And and, and I love that music. But you know, I was talking with uh, 
my friend Riley Walker, who's a musician, and uh, you know, he was like making fun of London Calling. It's, <laughs> this album is corny, you know. And I was, and part of me was scandalized by that because I was oh, like, wow. "What London Calling? It's, a, it's one of the great records of all time." But yeah, it, it just shows like um, how these things shift over time, and that's a fascinating thing for me. It is, yeah. As a as a music critic, just to see not only what is what's new and how that's evolving but how the past evolves and like what people take from it um well that's what your book i mean your book uh twilight of the gods was kind of taking this macro view of classic rock right because yeah i think you sort of define classic rock as you know the era from like 67 to 94 i don't know if those are the exact right. but somewhere in yeah, there and, somewhere in there yeah. and you kind of take a macro view of it and saying this is this was an era of music and now that it's past or, you know, you know, now that we can basically look back on it, you kind of analyze it from that perspective. But what's interesting is I feel like these things are still shifting, you know, which bands or which artists are considered, you know, what people are still going to be listening to as, as we get further and further away from that era, you know, in 1994, I don't think you would have necessarily said Steely Dan is going to be, one of these bands that has, you know, the legacy that it that it now is kind of still building on, right? Well, one thing with Steely Dan that I think is yeah. still underrated when when we talk about like why has this band? You know, I said Reclamation earlier. I I'm actually not totally cool with the way people talk about that because it's like Steely Dan yeah. was like huge in the '70s. They've always been popular. <laughs> right. It's just that like a certain kind of listener mm. likes them now, which is like yes. an indie rock person, basically. They're the people who have reclaimed them, but it's not like the larger culture ever really yeah. didn't like Steely Dan. Um, but anyway, no. I think one thing that's underrated is has been the influence of black musicians in how we contextualize Steely Dan. Like I know for me personally, I started listening to Steely Dan in the early aughts uh, for a couple of reasons one i had a, i had a couple of female friends who love steely dan which i think is another sort of bucking the cliche of of what we define as like a fan sure. of this band because i know a lot of women who love steely dan i don't yeah. think this idea that it's just like dudes who love this band i think it's totally <laughs> false yeah but another thing that got me into them was pharrell williams mm. uh uh, you know who at the time was like one of the biggest producers you know working at the yeah. neptunes you're not the a, first to mention him among and, these and i read an interview where he said that steely dan was his favorite group wow. and i was blown away by that but then i started to listen to their records and i i could see why that is that there is an aesthetic i think the steely dan that you can apply to like a lot of r&b and hip-hop in, in terms of it just being this very studio-based type music i think that people like pharrell williams were very particular about drum sounds on their records like that's like one of the great things about like those neptunes productions of like you know like of, of the early aughts just like the beats are so good yeah um and just the combination of like jazz r&b and pop that it's not the typical 70s rock band where it's about guitar riffs and you know this sort of like macho posturing yeah you know, the idea of like two guys especially like two like new york jewish guys <laughs> delving into black music yeah. with like all these studio musicians 
in a way that's like closer to a modern conception of how records are made than like the who getting into the studio is like four dudes and bashing right songs you know and i love the who but like i i think that that uh sh- sort of shift in like what people care about in music mm-hmm. has really benefited steely dan and you know you have like Pharrell williams you know quest love has been like a outspoken proponent of steely dan there's there's a great uh interview because he has his own podcast he did an interview yeah. with michael mcdonald mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that was great where, where he's like worshipful of michael McDonald. <laughs> it's crazy and I, I i just feel like that's underrated because like when people talk about steely dan like white music critics they they will mm. dismiss steely dan as being this like white bread band i mean there was an insane tweet recently i guess i won't say the name of the critic who said yeah. this okay but this critic called steely dan like white supremacist music yeah because it was you know overly concerned yeah like technical proficiency and it's like i know that's ridiculous have you heard of james brown (laughs) are you aware of like how crazy james brown was with was with his bands and like how he demanded precision like i feel like well another funny tweet that i'll see a historical to to argue that like oh only white people care about like musical sophistication like have you heard of like duke ellington have you heard of like well there's a lot of ignorance i think there's a lot of ignorance. I think people see Donald and Walter and they think, you know, these two white, like, you know, got bros or whatever. Uh, you know, one tweet that I'll see a lot is like white people went off when they laid down the groove for Peg or something like along those lines, like white people, you know, Steely Dan is an example of when white people went off, but it's, you know, who laid down the groove for Peg is literally Chuck Rainey and Bernard Purdy. So I think it's partially ignorance. Well, um, and, and, and like, look who sampled yeah. that song. I mean, going yeah. back to De La Soul on Three Feet High and Rising, you know, yeah. you, going back to like the late 80s, if you want to talk about Steely Dan being out of fashion and sort of like white rock music circles, well, yeah. hip hop people were sampling those records. You know, yeah. the, the biggest example, this isn't Steely Dan, but Warren G with Regulate, mm-hmm. where you have a lot of the studio cats from L.A., playing on that record like Jeff Picaro plays drums on that song Jeff Picaro of course from the Katie Lyde era of Steely Dan uh you know you look at this is an off-sided example but like Michael Jackson Thriller has like a lot of those sort of yacht rock guys playing on that record yeah I don't know there's, there's like way more crossover with this kind of thing than I think the more reductive and I think normally like white music critics like I, who just want to dismiss this as they want to put it in a box <laughs> so they don't realize yeah. like it's actually you know like steely dan has like a fairly sizable footprint in like modern r&b and hip-hop you know and, and you just have to talk to the artists themselves to right. talk about that for the Bronx, this rap shit probably never would be going on. So tell me where you from? Uptown, baby. Uptown, baby. We gets down, baby. I'm for the crown, baby. Uh, uh, the guns like what? Uh, the Lord's Rick is like what? Uh, sound view like what? Rain support roots that impress the tree. There's a breeze and a rock kites fly high under the branches. Convertible fly by the sky. Blue fills green. It's a picture that creates a scene of the destiny that controls my fate. Reflections of light create shapes inside of this picture. So come on, come on, come on. If you are ready, hurry up to the home you don't know. I miss you already. 
part of the reclamation is coming from the fact that you know people heard um steely dan from these hip-hop samples like kanye uh sampled kid charlemagne or you know de la soul um millennials as children heard the samples and in their mind you know steely dan was cool on some level and now that they're actually you know digging into the steely dan catalog itself they're they're you know realizing you know how how great it is on its own and yeah it's funny because and i'm interested in hearing your opinion like how does steely dan fit into the classic rock canon because they're kind of such a unique take on on rock you know because like some of the um influences you mentioned like duke ellington or um it's a little bit different than bands that usually we think of when we think of the word classic rock so you know the rolling right. stones or the who or, or pink floyd um like where do you you know where do you put like do you put steely dan in the yacht rock category or do you put them i mean are they kind of their own thing i mean where do you place them well, like in the yacht rock thing yeah they belong and they don't belong you know mm -hmm. and, i agree and they, be yeah. they belong in the sense that they were the springboard for a lot of those artists and they provided a blueprint for what yacht rock is which is basically again a combination of pop rock and soul and jazz influences uh getting away from that idea that came out of the 60s of like rock bands having you know like long blonde curly hair and like you have the chest sticking out like Robert <laughs> Daltrey or yeah. Robert Plant model and you have the hotshot guitarist and you have like the bombastic rhythm section you know that is when you think about the prototypical rock band of that era like that's what it looks like and Steely Dan obviously doesn't resemble that and it's almost like a deliberate you it know is. uh way you know like, like we're consciously not doing this and also just the idea that, a band, that like a rock band you know is designed to play live and it's designed to be kind of raw and uh, you know unvarnished you know like well we're not going to approach it that way we're going to make records the way that r&b records are made you know that uh there's a sort of uh you know if you look at motown or you know or stacks it's like there's almost like an assembly line quality to like how they put right. together records it's not this uh sort of persona that a rock band has that you know you've got like yeah like the lead singer and the guitarist with mystique and you know the silent <laughs> bass player and like the wild man drummer you know the yeah. like we know each person and with steely dan it's like it doesn't matter who's playing this it's, it's just about the final product and like you you know who we are donald and walter but like we're just sort of fronting that we're a rock band like we're not really a band uh -huh. you know and and again i think that is something that in a way makes even more sense now than it did then you know there's so many bands now that aren't really bands in the, tr in the traditional sense it's like one person whether it's like kevin parker and tam and paula right. or adam adam to some degree is like this in the war on drugs where it's okay. like in the studio i'm going to be making these records but then when we're on the road we have I have this band and we're gonna have a band identity, but it's not necessarily the same thing as like what's on the records. The identity uh, is tied more to the studio production of the albums rather than the studio production being an adaptation of what the kind of the live rock band presentation is. Yeah, and it's like but, again, like with uh Tam and Paula, yeah, you know, Kevin Parker's the only one in his photos, you know, and he's had guys in that band for a long time, but 
it's understood that this is his band and mm-hmm. that he's making the records and the guys you see on stage it has a band name to it but it's really about this guy you yep. know, in the same way that we know steely dan no matter who no matter what, <laughs> what wonderful musician is playing yeah. on stage with them we know it's about those two guys and really it's i guess now it's just about donald um what i think is interesting about steely dan is there's been another shift within steely dan in terms of the part of the catalog that is mm. really valued yeah. i mean i think asia has always been looked at as like the high water mark and right. that's why you know the classic albums documentary was made about it but I know like when I first got into Steely Dan, I gravitated more to the early 70s stuff because it was, you know, it, it's when they're sort of the closest to being a normal rock band, like on yeah. Countdown to Ecstasy. Well, you they know, were touring like, as a rock band for the first three albums. Yeah, like you listen to like Reeling yeah. in the Years and it's like, this isn't that different from like a Thin Lizzy song, really. Yep. I mean, you, you, this, you, could, you could hear Phil Wynott singing this and you have like the harmonized <laughs> guitars and everything. Um and I remember, you know, Gaucho was looked at almost as like mm. this sort of antiseptic misfire. It's underwhelming. You know, Hey 19 is a good song, but the rest of these songs just sounds sort of neutered and yada, yada, yada. And now Gaucho, even more than Asia, my sense is that that is the record mm. now that yeah. people look at as the one. And certainly, yeah, like the late 70s Steely Dan, I think, is the is the most loved steely dan like because like real scam i also remember reading like the rolling stone record guide and (laughs) that album was maybe like a three-star album compared Mm. to like a five-star album like Asia. it was almost like you know this is like a little bit of a dip between katie lied and asia but now real scam is like one of the most loved albums and in their catalog so i I think that's interesting and i think it reflects this larger thing we're talking about where the most studio bound stuff right is the most loved stuff even within the steely dan world like people i i've seen people call can't buy a thrill like the worst steely dan (laughs) i I can't really agree with i i love that album but i under but i think what they mean is is that they don't that's not what they want from Steely Dan. They don't want right. them to sound like a rock band. They want them to sound like the studio unique thing that they are. On right. The 70s albums. Yeah. And I think as you evolve as a Steely Dan fan, maybe at first you gravitate towards the, the camp by a thrill era, because that's what feels a little bit more familiar to you. I, I know when I was getting into them, Gaucho was not my immediate favorite um, because I, it was just too smooth for me. It was just right. Like the sound of it was just so alien um, which now I see was intentional in a way they were trying to achieve a kind of disconnect in terms of like pushing that smoothness and that antiseptic uh, quality that you mentioned to kind of an extreme to create the the kind of queasy atmosphere that is uh, that is very prominent on that album. But yeah, I think Gaucho of any of the of the albums um, has has kind of uh, there's been a real shift in in how people view that. I don't think it's as divisive as it once was. Um, I think it's almost yeah. like, you know, I think a lot of people, especially the the kind of faithful Steely Dan contingency, you know, views that as as the high watermark even over Asia at this point. And I, I know that on your um I looked at your uh, your top fifty Steely Dan songs list and I think like three of the top four were were gaucho songs, right? Right. Yeah. And the title track was my was my number one. And which I, I, I thought was a pretty it was 
a unique pick and also a great pick because that in a way to me is kind of like it epitomizes like steely dan's greatness in, in a way um, yeah exactly where it yeah. is uh, i mean i think the thing with gaucho the thing that people have gravitated to yeah. is the storytelling on that record mm, yeah, and, and, exactly. and the feeling that it's unified in a way that it isn't necessarily on the other records like like that record feels like a snapshot of los angeles at the end of the year right. and even though i think they made a lot of it in new york um but the the lyrics yeah. are very uh 80s and it's very uh cinematic yeah you know, like it's glam- like these little like short glam- stories it's like a short story yeah. collection um a, gl- a glamour profession yeah. is like such a visual song <laughs> and and gaucho to me is my favorite steely dan song because yeah. it really i think brings in everything that you want it's a great melody it has that smoothness you're talking about but there yep. is that queasiness to it yep. and the storytelling you know there's so many great references and lines and it's funny and incredibly sad at the same time like the that song i laugh at it and i <laughs> I, I feel i feel really bummed at the end of you the feel year. you feel bad for the bodacious cowboy yeah getting just dropped it's off <laughs> you know side of the road it's like i think it's such a sad song and there's so much uh you know sorrow on that record no he can't sleep on the Yeah, uh, like like you know, like by the end of that album, uh, the, the New World Man, Third World Man. Feel, I was, yeah, let's edit that. New yep. World Man is a rush song. <laughs> uh, like by the end of that record, you get the Third World Man. Yeah, it's like that's just that slow creep. And yeah, the, you know, that one's I, a, a downer in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, you feel like the bomb is dropped on Los Angeles. Yeah. You know, at, at the end of that song, but you know. Like the bodacious cowboy, he's like, you know, he's used and discarded at right. the end of that song, and I, I always feel sad. But the best, the, the best choice in my, what makes that song so great, and the best choice that I think Donald Walter made on that song is putting it from not from the perspective of the bodacious cowboy, but of like the party host, right? Isn't he the right. one who's like yell? and and Donald's that gives Donald's performance. It, it kind of gives it this like I don't not anti-hero. I'm trying to categorize who the like what the narrator of that song is, but it's not from the perspective of the bodacious cowboy or the friend he's with. It's from or lover. I don't know. I guess it depends on your interpretation. It's from the perspective of the the host, which gives Donald the license to have that kind of like snarling, um, aggressive, you know, vocal performance. Right. I think on the Nightfly, he kind of pulled back a little. I think Gaucho, in terms of just his like. His, you know, vocal performance or delivery, it, it like kind of hit a fever pitch or something. Because yeah, on that yeah, song his... in Glamour Profession, it's really nasal and kind of just like he he seems almost like disgusted. And, right. And, um, I I just love it, but <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like his vocals and 
I know it's not underrated for you. Maybe I'm just going <laughs> to say this to like yeah. a larger, but I feel like his vocals are so underrated. I I, mm. I think his vocals for me are the key. I agree. To like why I love Steely Dan because, yeah. you know, if, if it were just smooth back, you know, smooth soundscapes and he had, and I love Michael McDonald, but if he had like a more of like a Michael McDonald type voice, like a, like a beautiful soulful voice, mm-hmm. um, it wouldn't hit in the same way. You know, there's something yep. about Fagan's voice that's so human and flawed. Right. That it, it really just how it melds with that music, I think mm-hmm. is really kind of magical, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's what gives that, it's what, it's why it's not just merely smooth, you know, yeah. like, like when people talk just, Oh, it's like smooth music, but it's like, well, but the vocals aren't smooth. <laughs> Yeah, you know the the and and what he's singing about isn't smooth, you know. Yeah, I mean that's I the know. paradox of the whole Steely Dan, you know, experiment or whatever you want to call it, is just like the the disconnect between the, you know, the smooth and and you know precise and perfectionism of uh, of the musical recordings, but then these lyrics and and Donald singing of them, you know, it's that the tension and counterpoint between the two that makes it such a, you know, if you're a fan, it's, it's irresistible. If you're not probably what you're getting turned off by. Well, what I, I think is the reason that they're so, you know, people tend to hate them is because I think for a lot of people, Donald's voice is just too bizarre. I still recall when I first held your tiny hand. I love you more than I can tell, but now it's stopping time. Sure, he's a jolly Roger until he answers for his crime. Yes, I'll match him win for win now. Well, it's funny because you see, I do see Steely Dan fans yeah. who like get really upset if you group them in with like the Doobie Brothers and, uh, mm. you know, Toto and the <laughs> Eagles and Fleetwood Mac, you know, right. it's almost like going too far in the opposite direction mm. where you are, you know, there's, pe- there's people over here who don't take Steely Dan seriously enough. Maybe these other people are taking them yeah. a little too seriously. I, I mean, the fact, the fact <laughs> of the matter is that they totally belong in the same camp as the Eagles, but they okay. also belong in their own camp. You know, mm-hmm. like, I see. They, don't have, they don't have to just be in one place, as, sure. you know, because you could also group them with Earth, Wind, and Fire and, like, uh, Stevie Wonder. You know, the, the people that, you know, if you want to group them with the Eagles, it's because of what Steely Dan talked about on their later records in los angeles the thematic territory between gaucho and hotel california absolutely is very similar so in that sense they definitely belong together if you want to talk about steely dan musically and like how they were combining again all these different kinds of music then maybe like songs in the key of life is a more apt yeah. comparison or totally. again, like the earth, wind and fire records that were coming out at that time. Um, you know, you don't have to just put them in one camp, you know, you can put them in a lot of different areas. For sure. uh, but yeah, I, cause I know like people hate the Eagles and they're like, they get offended, 
you liken Steely Dan to the Eagles, but you know they're man. They're both managed by Irving Azoff. They were uh, well, Don Henley almost sang on Peg, I think. Right. They knew I, each other. They liked yeah. each other. You know, I'm not as a, I'm not an Eagles hater like a lot of people. I, I I'm fascinated by the Eagles. Uh, I think that they <laughs> are another band that, um, you know, they wrote some perfect songs. Yeah. They also are like assholes, you know, but like their assholishness is incredibly entertaining. Like that history of the Eagles documentary is like one of my favorite movies of like the last. <laughs> I've never years. seen that. Yeah, oh, you gotta watch the, that. I don't actually hate the Eagles myself. That I don't. I don't go de- deep with them like I do with Steely Dan or other you know bands of that era. But I I like some of their songs and I think they're interesting to like listen to. You'll love about. that documentary. I, you know, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the thing like with documentaries. Is I think sometimes people are like, well, I can't watch the Eagles documentary because it's almost like I'm endorsing the Eagles, and it's like, no, not at all. It, but but I think not liking the Eagles would make that movie better, right? Because they don't come off that well at times, and it's really just about like if you're interested in superstar rock of the '70s and how music changed from like this sort of like hippie country rock to like this super corporate stadium rock over the course of you know that decade right that movie is essential interesting yeah and there's so many moments in it that are just hilarious and great and (laughs) don and they're great characters you know i so yeah i to any listeners out there if you don't like the eagles still watch that movie you will you i I guarantee you will have a good time all right I'll, i'll watch it yeah I mean, at least the first half, because it's like a two-parter. It's like about three okay. and a half hours. Wow. The second half is more about the reunion tour, mm. which I still think is great because there's <laughs> a lot of drama in that okay. section. But for sure, the first part, which covers like until they break up in 1980, that is super entertaining. Uh, so, yeah. There was a... Eagles. Um, that's your Eagles documentary pitch. Yeah, there was actually a... Um, there's a quote. I think it's in Major Dudes, uh, which is a great compilation of um, uh, interview, most mostly interviews with Donald and Walter from the seventies. But he basically yeah, somewhere, yeah, I, maybe it's on my other shelf. But yeah, I've yeah. got that. You've got that. Yeah, it's it's essential for for Steely Dan fans. If none of you have uh, taken the time to to read that, but um, yeah, there's some great Gaucho stuff in there. <laughs> there where... is there's like an interview where like the reporters in there, like while they're recording Babylon sisters, and, <laughs> uh, like the backing vocals is over and over again. Oh yeah. Well, the fade out on Babylon sisters, like they took like, I don't know, days or something to, to get that right. And like Walter was presumably in some like crappy hotel room, you know, just, uh, uh well, he was going through a, a rough, a rough patch during, uh, yeah. during Gaucho. He got hit by a car and, his girlfriend died of an overdose. I mean, it's, yeah. Uh, I was just gonna say the the quote was just that Donald Fagan basically said uh, the Eagles were even more down on L.A. than they were. He said, right. no, "We're not, we're not even that down on L.A. If you want to talk about being down on L.A., go look at uh, Don Henley. Go look at the Eagles. They're they're really down on it. We're kind of you know, I think they always saw themselves as more just like you know, flies on the bystanders to the whole L.A. seventies thing." Um, right but yeah well, and, and and henley is like the most cynical mf around like, if you think <laughs> donald and walter are cynical yeah super cynical like 
the long run actually is an interesting album yeah that has a lot of similarities i think to gaucho that's like another sort of end of the 70s hmm. record and you know the, the okay. and you know steely dan they take a break after gaucho the eagles take a break after the long run and uh i mean there's some shitty songs on the long run it just <laughs> seemed like they were just yeah they're kind of interesting because you feel like oh this band's out of gas so uh the like the disco strangler okay it's on that album that's an awful song but kind of an interesting song but um, i feel like the eagles participated more in the culture of la in the 70s where and i yeah. could be wrong I, I don't know that much about them but like have you ever noticed there are no pictures of donald and walter with like any other musicians from like 1975 to 1980 it's just right. always like some shot of the two of them being like looking really pale and like right looking i don't know like they're just kind of spending literally all day every day in a studio doing drugs <laughs> yeah like fagan didn't date stevie nicks you know like that, exactly you know, right you know, there was, there's none of that um yeah definitely i yeah definitely compared to like fleetwood mac and the eagles steely yeah they were just like the uh prototypical smart guys in the back mm -hmm. of the classroom yeah talking to the to each other and no one else they kind of are yeah i mean they must have lived something because how else would they have come up with songs like you know gaucho or babylon sisters because those seem to be you know not to keep talking about the eagles but you know, that <laughs> song, song life in the fast lane glenn fry in that eagles documentary talks yeah. about how we were driving down the highway in la and i was with a drug dealer and I was like, whoa, man, slow down this car. And the drug dealer turns to me and says, life in the fast lane, man. <laughs> and, and Fry's like, ooh, that's, you know, so he was participating in that, but, and he got that great quote, but, you know, that song doesn't have the detail of glamour profession, you know? Well, he yeah. was probably he was gacked out of his mind too. You know, he couldn't observe things. He was <laughs> probably didn't remember half the stuff that uh, happened. You know, he might have hallucinated that whole scenario with the drug dealer in the car. You know, who knows? Well, so much of the language on Gaucho just it's it seems more like something that you would like. Obviously, their the band name is uh, taken from a Burroughs uh, book, but you know, there's so much playfulness in the in the word choices and word. You know. All, all these little phrases that now have become like, and this is why I think Gaucho on Twitter is the most popular album. Like so many profile names are like, you know, Jive Miguel, the bodacious cowboy, uh, right? you know, high at the Custer dome. There are all these little phrases and, and references and like, they have their own sort of like lexicon, you know? Right. Yeah. And uh, songs that, you can follow, but also don't make any sense in, <laughs> in some weird way, yeah. you know, that, that that's very, but that just invites you to listen more because you're, right. you're trying to decipher some of this stuff and figure out what it means. I mean, you yeah. know, I, I mean, I think you can see that with any kind of big artist like that. I mean, there's similar things like in the Dylan world, you know, where the, obviously parallels there, but um, yeah, I don't know. Steely Dan, I, I, I just think, their cross-generational appeal is unique and 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 just like what they signify is unique. Uh getting into them or not getting into them, it it feels like um it feels like it means more 
than just deciding whether to like this old rock band. You know, <laughs> right. There is again like an ideological aspect, I think, to talking about Celia Dan that like if you endorse them or not, you're you're sort of saying something about yourself and how, what you value in music. But isn't that a big uh, part of you know why we you know isn't that a big part of fandom? Is really you're yeah. kind of you're making a statement about your identity through through these you know records absolutely you, you collect absolutely absolutely and uh and and also the thing with steely dan the idea of there is an aspect to it where i think people are it's almost like saying i'm shedding a certain kind of vanity about myself mm. that i am not concerned that i'm not 25 anymore you know because there does seem to be a fairly common trajectory of like people deciding and i've seen this with the grateful dead too recently but yeah. like uh, i'm I'm, in, I'm about to turn 30 maybe i'll check out steely dan now yeah because when you're in your 20s this fits when you're in your 20s are donald fagan and walter becker the two guys you want to be like your avatar you know what i mean they're not the prototypically yeah. cool well they might stars. now in a weird <laughs> way you know yeah. i feel like i i feel like i see younger people now embracing that um yeah, and one thing we haven't talked about too, yeah, was them winning the Grammy for album <laughs> of the year and in two thousand one, which I think, yeah, and I've seen people theorize about this that that caused a lot of like Gen X people to really hate Steely Dan. You know, this idea of them representing baby boomers, like not wanting to let go of the culture. So you have Steely Dan, which is a very boomer type band in one respect and then they're going up against beck and radiohead which are like two quintessential gen x groups and sure. steely dan wins and uh i mean there's still people who get pissed off about that i feel like every grammy year you see people <laughs> complaining about that yeah um, I, I was actually uh like i'm trying to i think i was either 16 or 17 when that happened yeah. So my reaction to that was kind of like, what the, f like, yeah, old guys, like, what is this? Like, I didn't right. even know exactly. they were still making music. Like, I, I, right. at the time, I kind of placed them in the same category as um, Elvis Costello, which was like music that, you know, pe boomers listen to, you know, that's maybe a little more intellectual, but not very rock and roll. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was, and, you know, do I think Two Against Nature is better than Kid A? No, I don't. <laughs> they didn't win Album of the Year for Asia or Gaucho, so like I'm fine with them winning for Two <laughs> well, Against I, Nature. I think, it, yeah, it was like, a lifetime achievement, in my opinion, because and, and it's also Donald, hilarious in yeah. retrospect. You it know, is, like, yeah. Like, like Radiohead doesn't need a Grammy for, <laughs> for Kid A. I mean, that album wasn't made to win Album of the Year. Uh, you know, it, it's hilarious that they won in 2001 to me. Like, I, I love that now and and that's a and it's not as good as kid a but that's a great record i love i love two against nature I'm so glad. yeah because some steely dan fans are not that keen on the uh the two reunion albums so I, i'm i'm into them i just uh to me they're separate interesting okay you, you know i you know to be like well how does two against nature measure up against yeah that's so logic or something yeah. like i i i just <laughs> think those that, that original run is so perfect mm -hmm. and it's just a, 
and it's so enmeshed with the times, you know, and it's such an important, I think, sociological bomb. <laughs> it for is America yeah. in the seventies, <laughs> along with just being brilliant musically that uh, I don't know. It just feels like, it feels weird to put two against nature and everything must go like yeah. in that body of work. I think you have to, to put them me. more with the, um, the later solo work, if anything. So like, right. Exactly. I, I yeah, I think that makes Mama more sense. or, you know, Walter yeah. Becker's albums. Um, R right. Yeah. That to me makes more sense. And it's not, it's not like I'm sliding those albums. It's yeah. just, I don't know. It's just different. Yeah. You know, although it, two it, against it, nature kind of picks up on Gaucho's kind of character or short story style. Right. Totally, you know. Totally, uh, yeah. I mean, in a way, it it really is. It really just kind of pick up where they left off. Yeah, in a um, way, yeah. Which is an interesting thing, but I don't know. In <laughs> my, I mean, I, I was talking with. Uh, well, by by the time this post, this will probably already be up, but because I do this Bob Dylan podcast, and we did a bonus episode yep. on a Steely Dan show from from two thousand, and. One of my co-hosts was trying to say that Two Against Nature is better than the first two Steely Dan albums. Uh, Can't buy a thrill. Is this a Jokerman? Yeah, yeah. Because I, I was like, I've I've been on Jokerman, and they're oh yeah, of course, of course. they're going to do this too. Yeah. <laughs> so and yeah. I was like, no, no, you can't. No, that's not. Yeah. That, that's not true. Well, that's me. the I mean, Jokerman like, mindset. You know, that is the Jokerman mindset. <laughs> but I was like, no, I'm sorry. I mean. I, I just think it's uh it's not better it's a than different animal no. you know if i had a gun to my head i'd say well pretzel logic is probably my least favorite of yeah. that original run but i'm not gonna call it the worst because i think that's a great record i mean it's just because the other albums are are so good in my mind yeah i mean again like their run in that in that period um it's just like one of the great runs of all time i mean they were really super is. prolific almost an album every year um yeah, the album and, a year thing to do. I mean, they didn't miss a year, right? Seventy two. Oh no, seven seventy two seventy seven. Yeah. Well, well, like because seventy seven. Yeah. Yeah. So but the first six are annual. Right. That's that's nuts. I mean, to go yeah. from and just the evolution of the sound to go from "Can't Buy a Thrill" to Asia in in five years is pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah, and again, you feel like there's an arc there. I mm -hmm. th those albums are so interlocked to me. I think that's another reason why I just have trouble grouping in the later albums. Even though you know, I think you can make a case. Two Against Nature does, like you said, have some some uh, some connections that got outro, but just how each album goes into the next in the seventies, um, <laughs> it's like one big body of work almost. It's almost like one big album uh, that you're, you're with these guys. Right. In LA or in American seventies, we're, like, <laughs> we're gonna write about what what happens in America during this time.